Book three, chapter three of The Mask by Florence Irwin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Early October saw the Howlands at home again in their apartment, and some ten days later came the appearance of Alison's book. Fame is an incomprehensible thing. It would be a brave man who would attempt to analyze it, or to give an infallible formula for its capture. Only one thing about it is sure. When it comes, it comes like a thunderbolt. A man may strive for years to overtake fame and strive in vain. He may never succeed, or he may succeed overnight. He may waken some fine morning to find that he has captured it, and from that day forth nothing that he does can fail. And the next man may shoot his first arrow and bring down the prize with scarcely an effort. While Alison Howland hoped for success for her first book, she was not at all prepared for what actually happened. By the time she had been back in New York two months, she was almost gasping at what had come to pass. The mask took like wildfire. Everyone read it, everyone recommended it to everyone else, everyone praised it. The first edition sold so quickly that the second had to be rushed out and that in turn was exhausted almost overnight. A few days after its issue, not a copy could be raked up in the city of New York with a fine-toothed comb. Presses were kept hot. The book headed the list of best-sellers. Clergymen preached about it. The publishers were besieged with inquiries as to its authorship. Alison used to sit in dazed wonder and marvel how such things could happen. Every day her husband would say to her, You can't keep this thing up, Al. You will simply have to claim the authorship. It's bound to come out. And she would answer, It shall never come out. How can it, unless I permit it? And that I shall not do. But why not? Because I don't want to. I can't understand you at all. Don't you care for the glory? Not the least particle and in that she spoke truly. If the years in their passage had taught Alison Howland anything, it was that her grandfather's creed was true. The plaudits of the crowd are valueless. Every man's salvation or damnation lies in himself alone. She looked back on those Coningsboro days when she had floated in the still waters of undisturbed ideals, and she thanked heaven for the perpetual anchorage they would always afford her. She remembered the maelstrom of her first married years, her first vision of life as it really was. Disillusioned, tossed about, frightened and embittered, she believed that happiness was eternally lost to her. But in the end she had found her haven, and there she would rest forever in the shelter of that philosophy which had brought her peace. She knew that neither her heights nor her depths lay in any soul save her own. Though she could not always control events, she could certainly always control their effect upon herself. She knew that ignorance was not bliss, or that it was a very false and short bliss at the best and she knew that innocence and ignorance were no more synonymous than were sin and knowledge. The whole world lay before her, throbbing with life and pulsing with possibilities. She might choose her path, but she could tread it but once. 
no step could ever be retraced it behooved her therefore to keep her feet from straying at the end of her path lay eternity and that too depended on her choice of direction fame a breath of air loneliness and heartache but for them she would never have achieved her end phil's future more momentous than fame a thousand times over love yes that indeed was good it was for her to give for her to win for her to keep success had brought the fruition of her great plan step by step she retraced it in memory she had realized first of all that before she could help phil he must be made to believe in her if others applauded her he would naturally come to realize that her opinions and ideas were valuable added to this was her anxiety to relieve judge howland of the incubus of their annual allowance if she could make money enough to offset it she could surely persuade phil to forego it that was now possible but the unexpected furor created by her book plunged her into an even greater dilemma it came about in this wise in writing the mask she had consciously moulded her style upon her husband's this resemblance was now coming to be recognized by literary specialists and the claim was being made with constantly increasing vigor and insistence that phillips howland was the author of the mask the publishers also believing the claim began to urge that the psychic moment for disclosure had arrived they grew apprehensive lest it be not seized it was too provoking it spoiled everything phil couldn't accept the plaudits without loss of all that new virility that was growing within him and alison had no desire to accept them if she claimed all this sudden glory for herself she would eclipse and irritate her husband he would then slink in her shadow his head would go down instead of up and there would grow an ever-widening breach between them she didn't want to be the successful wife of an unsuccessful husband for that of course is what it means to be a woman of that sort of tissue are woven woman's love and woman's pride the thing she hoped for the thing she prayed for was that phil might have an inspiration and make a new success on this foundation had her whole scheme been based she would foster his self-respect she would relieve him of money pressure she would convince him that her own powers were not despicable that her opinion counted she would make him think she would coax him to write and then she would efface herself till he had caught up with her in the race to the goal hand in hand with him would she go or she would follow him but positively and unwaveringly did she refuse to precede him that was her plan it was a pretty plan and a subtle one and now the busybodies were about to ruin it all alison grew fairly feverish over it her husband insisted that she must positively disclose her secret she vowed with vehemence that it was the one thing which she would never do he studied her curiously 
although it seemed to him that she must certainly be crazy on this one subject yet he could not but be impressed by the dignity of her indifference to plaudits here was no preening parrot no flaunting peacock it is odd that we should be so eager to convince by speech and so forgetful of the influence of our action alison howland might have talked ten years on the transiency and unimportance of public praise and yet have failed to make the impression on her husband that she now made by her daily life and that without taking any thought whatever phil howland had never studied any living creature as he presently came to study his wife al he said suddenly one day someone ought to put you in a book put me in a book why how ridiculous there'd be nothing to tell about me except that i've written a successful story and that's a secret you'd be surprised if i should tell you something that i think what that your book is one of the least of your achievements and i'm not belittling it at that it was strange how much pleasure this speech of his gave her especially when she thought it over afterwards at that time she merely smiled and said if anyone ever put me in a book i certainly shouldn't let him name me al don't you like your name i love my real name but i hate that abbreviation of it it is ugly and it always reminds me of mr keppner you never liked him did you i admire his brain but nothing else about him it's odd how that crowd has dropped away from us we scarcely see them any more and as a matter of fact we've picked up no one else to fill their places that is because we are too busy when we have time for them we'll soon make a circle of friends al excuse me madam alison i should say this with a grin and a mock bow i've wondered sometimes whether keppner ever gave you any special reason for disliking him she was silent i suppose he did the dirty beast continued phil yes said alison slowly he did i longed to tell you about it but at that time i was absolutely sure that you would blame me you didn't know me as well then and as I was as innocent of responsibility as a newborn babe, I didn't care to be scolded for something I hadn't done. Her husband moved uneasily. Of course you didn't, he finally remarked. There never was a woman in the world who had less of that sort of thing about her than you. When was it? When Keppner made himself offensive, I mean it was the very day that he asked us to accept a dinner invitation in the afternoon i was alone and he dropped in he was horrible and i ran and locked myself in my room and stayed there until you came home you remember you remarked on my red eyes i supposed that mr keppner would not dare to re-enter the house for a long time if he ever came at all and that very evening he returned and i left the room as soon as possible when you came to me with that dinner invitation i refused it of course and then you thought that i was influenced by race prejudice phil's eyes were lowered 
and his head was supported on his hand. An unusual color had crept into his face. When he spoke his voice was very low. And I was a dog, he said, and accused you of lying. And if there is one thing you are not, it is a liar. Alison, I was a beast. Can you forgive me? She bent over and kissed him, and then rushed from the room. She couldn't trust her voice, nor her eyes. Her slate was clean. She hadn't a secret in the world from him, as far as her own acts were concerned. And how wonderfully it had come about. Phil took her part. He was furious at Kepner and three years ago it had been just the opposite. How he had changed! How everything had changed! How happy she was! All of this was very satisfactory, but the great problem still remained unsolved. What was to be done about the growing public certainty that Phillips Howland was the author of The Mask? Although Alison got no nearer to answering this riddle, a very welcome distraction from it presently arose. A certain dramatic star, a friend of Fallon's and an acquaintance of Phil's, wanted the book made into a play. Through the publishers the request was preferred, and by the same means of communication the answer was returned. The author of the mask would be delighted to have the book dramatized, if satisfactory terms could be reached. There was but one stipulation. The work of dramatization was to be done by Mr. Phillips Howland. This naturally had been Alison's idea solely. Her husband had never even suggested it, but once broached by her, he had accepted it with delight. To both of them it was immediately apparent how harmoniously their respective talents might thus be brought into conjunction. The creative ability was Alison's, the finer craftsmanship, the dramatic sense, the linguistic gift, all more mechanical than creative, were Phil's. The combination was exceptionally fortunate. And thus began the most exciting part of all. Phil worked early and late. He was in constant consultation with actors and stage managers. The piece was wanted for the late spring season, and no time must be lost. To Alison the work of dramatizing the book seemed stupendous. She honestly thought it was much more remarkable than writing it. In a book, as she pointed out to Phil, you could have an unlimited number of scenes and acts and settings. You could describe thought, and thus prepare your sequence of events. You could explain and argue and convince, but in a play it was so different. All of the many book scenes must be compressed into three or four acts. There could be no explanations and no theorizing. Thought must be translated into speech or depicted by facial expression and action. It seemed little short of impossible. Phil, on the other hand, was in his element. He was made for the task, and his experience with the Inca stood him in good stead. His quick sense of values was unerring. He knew the exact vocabulary that each character would naturally possess. Never once did the wrong word creep into his dialogue. 
oh she'd never say that never in the world he would cry in response to some speech suggested by manager actor or producer don't you see that wouldn't fit her if she wanted to get around that she'd do it this way as quick as a flash he had the proper words ready then his aptness at visualizing and his gift of appreciating pictures made an invaluable asset jove won't that make a stunning scene he would say again and again he had never in his life had so congenial a task his writing was all done at home and he wanted alison always within call generally she sat in the study with him one day when the piece was well along he seemed unusually restless he kept glancing up at his wife's bent head she was sewing as she sat and fidgeting with his desk fittings suddenly he rose and began to pace the room hands rammed deep in pockets after a few hasty turns he stopped stock still in front of his wife and burst out al i want to tell you something i'll never rest till i get it out i suppose you'll think i'm a damned thief though i vow to you it didn't seem anything to me at the time you know my mountebanks she nodded raising to him clear eyes that were filled with gentleness he took a deep breath and hurried on well i got the whole idea of that thing from an old french book that i found on a bookstall on one of the paris quays you mean that it is nothing but a translation oh no the poem is mine everything is mine except the central thought and the name she breathed a deep sigh of relief he heard it and it made his confession easier it was an obscure piece of prose in old french with the long s's you know and it was called les saltimbanques which is an exact translation of mountebanks of course and the idea of it struck me tremendously i used to think it over as i tramped up and down the streets till at last the meter of the poem began to fit itself to my footsteps and the words began to come it was absolutely necessary for me to put them down on paper i couldn't rest till i did it she nodded i know all about that she said yes well when it was done i knew it was good i knew i'd never surpass it if i worked a lifetime the man who wrote it had been dead for years he'd put it in such poor form that no one had ever noticed it and his thought was lost and i needed money more than i'd ever needed it in my life honestly i hardly knew where my next meal was to come from so i sent the thing off to a publisher never dreaming that it would become famous i simply hoped that there'd be someone with enough poetry in his soul to know that it was good and to give me something for it and before i knew it everyone was talking about it and my reputation was made of course she said i understand what could i do i couldn't say i didn't write it if it comes to that i did write the part that they were all raving about on your honor al do you think what i did was so very bad she considered a moment 
she could hardly guess with what anxiety he awaited her verdict no she finally replied i really don't dear but i am quite sure that you are going to be much more at ease if you make reparation how he demanded why i hardly know couldn't you prepare a note for future editions stating the source of the material on which your poem was based then you would still have the credit for your fine poetical craftsmanship which you deserve and yet you would avoid false credit for the original conception yes answered her husband he spoke slowly and very soberly yes i'll do that al it's an excellent idea suddenly she rose and held her face up to his as their lips met and his arms encircled her she felt very happy there was a lump in her throat and she wanted to cry but her heart was singing after some time she asked what about the inca dear that i think is really mine i've always been fascinated with the picturesqueness of peruvian history you saw yourself in reading up for me what opportunities for poetic flights the mere recital offered naturally i didn't create history but i took that last inca and imagined him as a live man from his youth up and gave him a real romance honestly i didn't do any conscious borrowing there and it is even finer than the other she reminded him phil didn't write any more that day but his failure to do so was immaterial because he had already been working at such lightning speed that he could afford to idle a bit his was a mercurial nature he either did nothing at all or he accomplished herculean feats there were no halfway measures for him he took alison out to dinner and to the theatre as they sat in the darkened house more often than not their hands were clasped and they felt as light-hearted as a pair of children on a holiday the completed dramatization of the mask was such as to raise the highest hopes of success in the breasts of all those concerned a very famous manager broadhead by name undertook to put it on as soon as it could be rehearsed an exceptionally fine cast was promised and a backer was found in a pittsburgh millionaire whose enthusiasm over the piece was boundless he predicted a sensational success for it to alison's surprise she was told that it mustn't open cold which being translated meant that it mustn't be tried out in new york where will they do it she asked in bewilderment stamford i believe replied phil stamford that little place but why that's the custom it's a very dangerous experiment to open cold they always take a piece to some smaller place within easy distance for the reporters and the theatrical men stamford or poughkeepsie or new haven atlantic city sometimes they've chosen stamford for hours and how long will it run there oh only three performances a matinee and two evenings then how long before they can bring it to new york if it is the success that they hope they'll have it here within ten days 
They're planning to switch another piece and get a theater in that way. I'm going to run up with the boys to the Stamford production. But unless you are especially eager to go, I think you'd better wait for the New York first night. Oh, yes, I'd rather. But you'll wire me from Stamford? Well, I should rather think so. The moment I know how it is going, I'll send you word. The day of the Stamford tryout, they were so nervous they could settle to nothing. It was a mere toss which of them would say to the other, Oh, do you think it will go? Do you think they'll like it? But whichever said it, the other would invariably reply, Of course it will go. It can't fail. They liked the book, and they'll like the play. Between them now, there was no choice when it came to a question of self-reliance. Neither of them was the prop, neither the clinging vine. They hung together for better, for worse, alike in their hopes, alike in their fears, each seeking and receiving support and encouragement from the other. After Phil left the house, there was no task to which Alison could force herself. She couldn't read, she couldn't write, she couldn't eat, she couldn't sleep. She was afraid to go out because of the expected telegram. At last it came. Almost before the bell had ceased tinkling, she was at the door. With trembling fingers she tore open the yellow envelope and read the message. Top-notch success. Everyone crazy with delight. Home tomorrow. P. She leaned against the wall, and her breath came quick and fast. Then, with the tears raining down her cheeks, she sent up a prayer of thanks for the good fortune that had come to them. Phil's return confirmed every hope they had nursed. The piece would open in New York in ten days. That would be Monday night, April 28th almost a year from the day when he had first read his wife's manuscript. Accordingly, many letters were written. The dear ones back home were all urged to come to New York for that marvelous first night. They were merely told that Phil had written a wonderful dramatization of the mask, and that a great success was prophesied for the piece. Even in quiet Coningsboro had the book made a furore. Mr. Terry had mentioned it in the pulpit, and had urged the congregation to read what he had called the strongest combination of philosophy, unquestioning faith, and orthodox belief that literature has offered in many a day. Judge Howland, who never read novels, had read this one, and rather to his disappointment had found no flaw to pick in it. It suited Coningsboro ideals, even while it stabbed Coningsboro complacency and self-sufficiency. With bated breath and feverish interest had the villagers read it. Elsa and Roscoe were the only ones in the home circle who could not accept the invitation to New York. They were sorry, but not heartbroken. Their horizon was rather completely bounded at present by a young lady not quite ten months old. Mr. and Mrs. Terry, Judge Howland, and Gertrude and Kenneth Rawl all wrote that they would be delighted to come on. As the opening night would be Monday, 
and as the terrys objected to sunday travel and had moreover to attend their sunday services the entire party was to leave coningsboro early on monday morning and reach new york about four in the afternoon alison and phil would meet them and take them to their hotel where gertrude and her mother would then have a couple of hours for rest rawle wanted them all including the howlands to be his guests at dinner preceding the play but alison and phil begged off on the plea of excitement they would meet the balance of the party at the theatre chapter three